Hello, listeners. If you are enjoying this podcast without commercial interruption and are financially able, please consider supporting our effort. To contribute, go to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and click on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Can I feel out? Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? When that baby light, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Listen, uh... Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man. One giant leap for mankind. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis and you are listening to episode number 386 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Skylab Prehistory. This special aeronautics and space report brought to you by NASA. Some of these parts and pieces coming together at the Kennedy Space Center, Florida, have familiar sounding names like the Command Module and Apollo Telescope Mount. Others are not as familiar. Multiple Docking Adapter, Airlock Module, Orbital Workshop. From all over the country, the pieces came. They're all part of the United States' next manned space mission, Skylab. A scant five months after Apollo 17 splashed down into the Pacific Ocean in December of 1972, NASA launched Skylab to begin a new phase of American manned spaceflight, space station operations. Unfortunately, it was a short phase, although there was the desire for a second Skylab station and discussion on other missions, there were only three manned Skylab flights, followed by a joint docking mission with the Soviets in 1975, and then a long drought of U.S. manned flights were planned until the era of space shuttle began. Skylab and Apollo-Soyuz were to be the final American spacecraft of the single-flight design. After the great success of the moon landings, it made sense to adapt former Apollo hardware for new programs such as Skylab. The actual development of Skylab space station evolved from NASA plans created in the late 1950s for an advanced spacecraft to follow the one-astronaut Mercury series. But in truth, the idea of large, long-term platforms in Earth orbit had been the subject of science fiction and study around the world for decades, long before the creation of NASA in 1958. A little over 100 years before Russia placed Salyut, the world's first space station in orbit in 1971, perhaps the earliest fictional proposals for a space station appeared in Atlantic Monthly during 1869-1870 to 
in Edward E. Hale's story entitled, The Brick Moon. Mr. Hale put forward the theory that an artificial satellite 200 feet in diameter could be placed in a polar orbit 4,000 miles above the Earth and it would follow the Greenwich Meridian ground track. It could serve as a visible navigational aid for sailors. This would enable seafarers to accurately determine their exact longitude by measuring the angle of the brick moon above the horizon. Hale called it the brick moon because the material of its construction would have to tolerate fire very well, as brick does. During the early years of the 20th century, Russian space theoretician Konstantin E. Tiakovsky proposed many interesting ideas for exploring beyond Earth's atmosphere. Some of his ideas included the construction of large metal space stations that he called huge metal cities. The cities would have gardens to produce food, thus creating a closed ecological system. Research areas or scientific laboratories would be provided as well as storage and living quarters for the crew. These space stations would be supplied by what he called smaller metal dirigibles, essentially a supply rocket. The rocket would access the space station by means of rendezvous and docking, thus keeping the occupants or flight crew supplied for long periods of time. Tilkovsky also proposed that work could be conducted outside the station by the crew wearing suitable protective clothing, thus introducing the concept of space walking and space suits. During the 1920s, several ideas for prolonged stays in space were put forward along with useful applications such ventures could offer the human race. The first serious proposal for a manned space station was published in 1923 by German rocketry pioneer Hermann Oberth in his work, The Rocket into Interplanetary Space. Oberth wrote that such a station could serve as a basis for Earth observations, as a weather forecasting satellite, as a communication satellite and as a refueling station for extraterrestrial vehicles launched from orbit. Furthermore, by making the station slowly spin, it would create an artificial gravity force in which the crew could work in a more Earth-like fashion. In 1928, Baron Guido von Perquette proposed that a network of space stations placed at different altitudes around the Earth could be used for multiple applications. Stations in lower orbits could be used for Earth observation, while those in higher orbits could be way stations for resupplying and refueling interplanetary space vehicles. In the same year, this idea was taken further by Hanarn Nordung of the Austrian Imperial Army. He proposed placing 
a space station in an orbit synchronized to the rotation of Earth. In other words, each orbit taking 24 hours. This would allow the station to remain over the same point on Earth for prolonged scientific studies and communications. Nordung's idea for a space station was to use a circular design resembling a donut. By allowing this donut wheel to rotate, artificial gravity would be created inside the station. On one side of the station would be a power generation plant, and opposite would be an astronomical observatory facility. After World War II, many varied studies were proposed on the prospects for manned spaceflight using rocket propulsion on missiles or aircraft. Proposals for orbiting the first artificial scientific satellites were also suggested for the International Geophysical Year of 1957 through 1958. These plans evolved into the first spaceflight programs of the United States and the Soviet Union and would lead to orbiting of the first satellites in late 1950s and to the challenge to place the first man in orbit a few years later. In the 1950s, there was a keen interest in looking to the future and part of this future was in space. The decade reflected the mood of the times with the numerous publications, articles, books, novels, and films about exploring and exploiting space and how benefits from space exploration and new technology would greatly improve everyday life on Earth. Several feature films portrayed a future where exploration of space was commonplace and where huge wheel-shaped space stations orbited the Earth as gateways to the moon, planets, and stars. During this period of time, at the dawn of the space age, the space station was featured as a focal point in any future manned exploration of the solar system. At that time, Dr. Werner von Braun was one of the leading figures in promoting space exploration. Von Braun had worked on the V-2 missile program in Germany during World War II and in 1945 was captured by the U.S. Army and relocated to the U.S. to work on the American missile program. One of the reasons Von Braun was important to the U.S. was because it was generally believed adaptation of military missiles for space exploration was the most effective and quickest method to gain space travel. Leading figures of rocket and missile technology, such as Von Braun, also authored many books and papers adding authenticity to some of the more fanciful ideas of spaceflight being shown in cinemas or in magazines of the day. A 1946 study by the Douglas Aircraft Company into the creation of a manned satellite suggested that significant scientific results could be obtained in the fields of cosmic rays, gravitation, geophysics, terrestrial magnetism, astronomy, and meteorology. Two years later, 
the Journal of British Interplanetary Society published a paper by H.E. Ross on orbital bases. Ross believed that such platforms would be perfect locations for astronomical observations and zero-gravity research, and would also offer a vacuum research facility that housed telescopes, teams of specialists and support personnel, and could be resupplied by smaller crews every three months. In 1950, Collier's Magazine began to assemble a team of space specialists to follow on from a U.S. Army symposium on space problems. Collier's wanted to encourage the American public that life was not just casualty list from the Korean conflict and Cold War fears, but that by moving out into space, there was a brighter and better future to be gained. The team selected was Werner von Braun, Dr. Fred Whipple, Dr. Joseph Kaplan, Dr. Heinz Haber, Oscar Schater, Willie Lay, and artist Chesley Bonestale, Fred Freeman, and Rolf Kelp. The team was tasked to write and illustrate articles that promoted the promise of space exploration. By 1952, Colliers was publishing a series of articles featuring papers presented at one of the first symposiums on spaceflight held at the Hayden Planetarium in New York on October 12, 1951. These covered a wide range of topics, including the manned exploration of space, the exploration of the moon, and international space law and sovereignty. Many of these articles also featured the use of a space station as a key element in any extended and international exploration of space. The text was enhanced by beautiful artwork, notably by space artist Chelsea Bonestell. This helped set the mood for the real space program to begin. But along with these dreams and predictions came concerns about the problems in sustaining space exploration. A paper by H. Cole presented at the Second IAF Congress in London in September 1951 was a forecast of the future and featured problems in creating a space station which have proven accurate especially with the construction of the International Space Station. Problem number one. Cole noted that a limitation in available payload weight would be a factor in any launch vehicle. This was proved out during the construction of the International Space Station by the Space Shuttle. Problem two. The techniques of orbital rendezvous and docking would first need to be mastered. Now, these were mastered during Project Gemini in 1965 and 66. Problem three, once the station was built, the crew would encounter limitations in work efficiency in weightless environment. Problem number four, if it was an international space station, 
there would be both national and economic factors to be considered with the growth of the station, which would restrict the operational budget. This occurred on the ISS with both the American and the Russian programs. Cole predicted that elements of a large-scale space station could be launched by several smaller rockets and assembled in orbit, enabling it to become operational before it was complete. This also allowed for delays in budgets and the launch schedule and adjustments to flight operations, a factor encountered during early ISS construction. Cole proposed that artificial gravity could be used to offset any physiological effects of prolonged weightlessness on the crew, which he said could number as many as 50 to 65 people. Of course, ISS never reached that number. But recognizing these potential problems in creating a space station led to alternative ideas. Three years later, during the 5th IAF Congress in 1954, Kraft Heinrich delivered a paper stating that an enormous station was neither necessary nor desirable from the point of view of construction, maintaining space operations, and overall cost. Furthermore, he wrote that a smaller crew of four could offer an equally productive scientific research program of experiments, observations, and orbital reconnaissance objectives, and efficiency could be maintained by a constant rotation of crews. Then, in the later half of the 1950s, the space station hit the mainstream in a major way when it was explained by Werner von Braun and others in a series of Walt Disney-produced television specials. In a series of three Tomorrowland specials, the space station was presented not only as a place where humans would live and work in Earth orbit, but also as a way station to other worlds, as a special effects-laden enactment demonstrated an orbital space station would be a key element in sending humans to the moon. The specials were based on concepts von Braun had presented at the first symposium on space flight in October 1951 and selected papers from Collier's Magazine under the title Man Will Conquer Space Soon. Von Braun laid out what he saw as a logical progression for space exploration, beginning with simple orbital missions, moving on to the construction of a space station, which in turn would be used to support missions to the moon in the year 2000. During 1958, the year of Sputnik, the American National Aeronautics and Space Administration, NASA, was created from the National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics. That same year, the space station studies continued with Kraft Heinrich, who was working for the Convair Division of General Dynamics. He conceived an early space station could be built by converting an Atlas ICBM, which was under development by Convair. The proposal called Outpost 
featured a four-man spacecraft that could pivot around to the side of a space laboratory to provide access through connecting side hatches. The modified Atlas would have a Vega upper stage and a crew capsule for the ride into orbit and recovery at the end of the mission. Then, in June 1959, Von Braun, who was working with the Army Ballistic Missile Agency, included in a report proposing the establishment of a military lunar outpost called Project Horizon, that a spent booster stage, by spent I mean one that had exhausted all its fuel while attaining orbit, that spent stage, could be used as a basic structure for a space station. Von Braun had first proposed this theory in the 1940s when working on the V-2 development program at Pinamunde. The economy of taking the final stage into orbit with the payload on an orbital mission was attractive as it afforded an additional useful volume after it had completed its initial task of placing the payload in orbit. The military application of orbital reconnaissance was already very attractive, and by placing a rocket stage in orbit, it would become an empty shell that could be employed as an observation platform once cleared of launch propellants. When the design of the enormous launch vehicle family Juno which of course was later named Saturn, was begun in the late 1950s, long before the launchers were assigned to the Apollo program, Von Braun spoke of using the spent upper stage from these rockets to create the first temporary space stations. But this was only a range of objectives for the Saturn family to be developed at NASA's Marshall Space Flight Center in Huntsville, Alabama. This concept later became known as a wet stage space station and became the genesis of what would later evolve into Skylab. During 1959, NASA began internal discussions into the long-range goals of the agency beyond the one-man Mercury program. These goals laid out a very logical step-by-step approach to space exploration. The goals were as follows. A multi-crewed orbiting space station. A larger and more permanent space laboratory. A manned lunar orbital and lunar landing flights. And ultimately manned interplanetary missions. From these proposals, NASA began to work towards a follow-on spacecraft to Mercury. They wanted to upgrade and enlarge the existing single-person design to support two astronauts for three days and also fund a new two-astronaut Mercury capsule with a separate large cylinder structure to support a two-week mission. In the 1960 budget request, the agency asked for $2 million to study methods of either constructing a new space laboratory or converting the Mercury design. But 
enthusiasm for manned lunar exploration was growing within NASA. And during a steering committee meeting on manned spaceflight, deep concern was expressed over diverting funds and reserves away from achieving a lunar landing objective if a space station became an integral part of NASA's plans. The successive steps taken toward manned lunar landings would be severely limited by the number of missions that could realistically receive adequate funding. These comments, cautions, and subsequent recommendations proved influential in shifting the focus of priority in NASA's long-term man in space program away from the creation of a space station and towards achieving lunar landing missions. At this time, there were two other events being conducted that had a direct application in the later Skylab program. The Douglas Aircraft Company participated in the 1960 Daily Mail Ideal Home Exhibition under the theme of A Home in Space. The impression given was that of a manned space station as it would appear on orbit. Douglas had won a competition to provide a full-size mock-up to be displayed in the Empire Hall, Earl's Court, London. The exhibit, which was based on the wet stage concept, formed from a simulated hydrogen tank, from a two-stage launch of an unspecified booster. Interestingly enough, the hydrogen tank was selected as it offered a larger internal volume than the oxygen tank did. The complete mock-up was 62 feet high and 17 feet across. The idea was that once in orbit, a crew of four space-suited astronauts could transfer from the nose cone of the spacecraft through a connecting tunnel and would clean out the still-attached second stage to begin the mission, setting up equipment stored inside the tank before launch. It was estimated that up to 200,000 people walked through that exhibit. The second event occurred in the United States when representatives from the NASA field centers were evaluating the concept of space rendezvous at a conference at Langley Research Center held in May 1960. The conference recognized that space rendezvous and docking would be essential for future manned space efforts and decided that each center should work on developing technologies for these maneuvers. Unfortunately, NASA had no funding for rendezvous flight test programming at that time, but this was an important decision for both the lunar and space station program's development. By mid-1960, plans for an advanced spacecraft to follow Mercury had grown into a three-man spacecraft with capacity for circumlunar flights. On July 5th, a House Committee on Science and Applications decided that placing a man on the moon within the decade of the 1960s should be a high-priority program goal for NASA, 
and that the agency should draw up plans to meet this goal and submit them to Congress. But in order to reduce costs, the lunar plan had to be completely integrated with other agency objectives. It only took 20 days for the name Apollo to be officially adopted by NASA for this new program. On July 29th, the Deputy Administrator for NASA, Hugh Dryden, announced future NASA program plans to industrial management representatives. He stated that the name Apollo would be used for a program of manned Earth orbit and circumlunar missions prior to 1970, which would also include the creation and orbit of a temporary scientific research laboratory. After 1970, the program would develop manned lunar landings and a space station, which would eventually lead to interplanetary flight and a landing on Mars. So, it is clear the creation of the space station was a key element in long-range Apollo program planning from the beginning and was part of a much larger space infrastructure. The current planning for the space laboratory, which was then termed Apollo A, consisted of an adapter measuring 12.8 feet in diameter and 7.9 feet high, fitted with the base of an Apollo service module and the top of the Saturn stage. This was planned to be a space laboratory for scientific experiments that could be performed during a lunar flight. These experiments included astronomical observations, monitoring the sun, developing EVA techniques, and micrometeoroid impact studies. Then, on May 25, 1961, the big announcement came. President Kennedy gave his historic speech committing America to a manned lunar landing before the decade was out. In the times of the Cold War and in the recent wake of both the flight of Yuri Gagarin, the first man in space, and the Bay of Pigs invasion fiasco in Cuba, the young administration needed a new goal to unite and encourage the American people. That goal became the moon, and Apollo became the program to achieve it. With a target to reach, efforts to develop the hardware gathered pace during 1961. The contract for constructing the Apollo Command and Service Modules was awarded to the Space and Information Systems Division of North American Aviation on November 28, 1961. It was also becoming clear that the technique of orbital rendezvous and docking would play an important part, not just in the lunar program, but for any future manned space operations. Therefore, on December 7th, NASA announced plans to develop a two-man Mercury spacecraft, the main objective of which was to test and develop orbital rendezvous and docking techniques with a previously launched unmanned Agena target vehicle. 
The new program received the name Gemini on January 3, 1962. Although the choice of the spacecraft to carry the astronauts to the moon had been made, the rockets to get them there were still under development at the NASA Marshall Space Flight Center. The huge launch complex in Florida and the astronaut training facility, the Manned Spacecraft Center in Houston, Texas, were also under construction. Exactly how to reach the moon and return to Earth was still undecided. NASA considered three main choices. 1. Direct ascent. This would involve launching straight from the launch pad towards the moon without first entering orbit. Unfortunately, this method would require a huge launch vehicle. Method 2. Earth Orbital Rendezvous. This would have components of the spacecraft assembled in Earth orbit before embarking on a direct flight to the moon's surface. This method was the favored option at the Manned Space Flight Center. Then there was choice three, the Lunar Orbital Rendezvous. This method would involve a spacecraft entering lunar orbit and a separate, smaller landing vehicle making the descent before redocking with the parent craft for the flight home. On July 11th, NASA announced the selection of Lunar Orbit Rendezvous for several reasons. Number one, a higher chance of success. Number two, a cost reduction of 10 to 15 percent over the other two methods. And number three, the least amount of technical development was required beyond existing commitments. Four months later, NASA awarded the contract for the Apollo Lunar Landing Vehicle to Grumman Aircraft Engineering Corporation. As the manned lunar program accelerated, studies into using hardware based on the Apollo spacecraft for other programs began to emerge. Despite being designed for lunar missions, Apollo's application for the space station studies was also recognized. Some of these earlier alternative mission studies being conducted were based on a concept proposed by Emanuel Schnitzer of Langley Research Center, which used a standard Apollo command and service module with an inflatable spheroid and a transfer tunnel to create a space laboratory. This design study was designated Apollo X. At this time, the X stood for experimental. The X was usually assigned to the rocket research aircraft of the day, such as the X-1, the X-2, X-15, and X-20. By the end of 1962, it was recognized that the future development of any space research station would clearly be restricted by the limitation of the overall NASA budget. Any authority to proceed would be reflected in this fact, and so the simplest design at minimal cost would probably receive the largest support for the space stations to be flown. Another important requirement was to establish a clear definition of objectives and benefits that would establish the role of the station early in its development, 
and where this research would lead to in the overall program. The Apollo program had presidential approval to place men on the moon by 1970, but no follow-up program had been defined or authorized. Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina on the shores of the mighty Yadkin River. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode number 386 of the Space Rocket History podcast entitled Skylab Prehistory. If you like to donate by mail, which works great for me, please use my new permanent address, which has been active for about nine months. If you don't know what that is, please email me and I'll give it to you. Believe it or not, my Twitter handle is working again. Of course, I lost over 1,100 followers during the hacking of the account, but it is back up again. My handle is the same as it used to be, at Space Rocket Hist, so please follow if you can. I am up to 46 followers. Our next episode should appear by April 21st. If you're looking for old episodes of the podcast, the first 205 are available on the Archive podcast. Search for Space Rocket History Archive. It should be available on most podcatchers. Now, if you're using Google Podcasts, you have to type in the whole name of the podcast, Space Rocket History Archive, or the search engine will not find it. Google made some changes. Nobody knows why. I don't even know if they know why. But that's the way it works now. And, by the way, if you began the emoji maneuver last year, it's an excellent time to complete it. Of course, I had a few thoughts. I would like to apologize for my mispronunciation of words, as well as the slight echo in the background. I just moved into my new office and my voice is bouncing all over the place. I promise my reverb is turned down to zero, but it's still echoing. Hopefully I'll get some more stuff in here to help the uh, sound quality. Well, I am really loving this Skylab history. Many things and details I did not know came to me this episode. (laughs) Most of this was taken directly from David Shaler's Skylab book. He did a great job on the details of the history of space stations in general, and then Skylab specifically. I ordered his book used, and it came from a library. And would you believe, I looked at the card. It actually had a card instead of a barcode. Would you believe it had never been checked out before? That was disappointing. But that's a good book. Anyway, I thought you might enjoy all this prehistory leading up to Skylab. I hope I was right about that. Now, all the pictures of these spacecraft I mentioned are on the homepage at spacerockethistory.com. That includes the outpost, which I had never heard of. And it was 
it was a really interesting concept. Uh, it was making a station out of an Atlas ICBM, an Atlas. Now, <laughs> I tell you, somebody was working overtime on this one. Check that out. And I have the uh, wet stage concept drawing that was part of the exhibit I mentioned. Very interesting one. An interesting concept where the where the astronauts themselves go up and they clean out that wet stage. <laughs> they go back in the tank, in the hydrogen tank, and clean everything up. And somehow they get that equipment that was inside the hydrogen tank the whole time. I guess they take it out of the plastic or however it was protected and get it to work. A pretty difficult task, I think. Then uh, there was the Apollo A. So please check those out at the homepage, spacerockethistory.com. I found Tiakowski was uh, really ahead of his time. His predictions were so accurate. It was just amazing. He was really ahead of his time. Also found it interesting that Von Braun had a very logical sequence of how things could have gone. Start with the orbiting space capsules, learn to rendezvous, build a space station, and then go to the moon. Now that sounds very logical. We instead skipped the space station step and went to the moon directly. Now, it wasn't logical. We did it for political motivations, but it was glorious, and I am glad we did during that incomparable decade of the 1960s. I don't think mankind has ever made that much progress that fast. For those interested in the house progress, we can rejoice because we finally moved into the house. As I record this, we have spent just two nights here, so we are still moving and unpacking. I can't tell you how good it feels and how thankful I am to be living in a house again after over a year in the camper. It is fantastic. Of course, there are a few things left to do, but we went ahead and moved in anyway. From the last time, I'll just update you, they uh, cut the sheetrock out at the garage to uh, find, they had to locate the wire for the garage button. So they had to cut open the sheetrock <laughs> and found, find the wire that the sheetrock guys covered up so they could put the uh, door button to open up the door and close the door. <laughs> now we have a working garage door and they they put a longer cord on the garage door motor and plugged it in so by golly that garage door's working now <laughs> I, I've never had a uh, garage on my house it's the first house I've had with a garage door with a garage so, so I'm quite uh, tickled with that since we last spoke, we found more sheetrock problems, which they did a partial fix on, but never got it completely right. And due to those problems, they moved the settlement date all the way 
to March 31st. And that was the day we signed the papers. Of course, they had to clean the house with their highly trained house cleaners who left paint stains all over the floor and mud on the doors and walls and dust everywhere. So they had to come back the next day and they spent a whole half an hour trying to fix that. And big surprise, they didn't fix anything. So basically, it's up to uh, uh, Mrs. SRH and myself to clean things up, like all the mud stains and the dust and the various issues like that. But I was so glad to get them out of my house before they messed up something else. (laughs) I really got to the point where I was afraid to ask them to do much else because they were going to just mess up something and cause another problem. But anyway... I'm happy now they're gone. But they will be coming back to finish up a few items that are on the punch list. Which are, they've got to connect the propane to the gas logs. Would you believe, folks, they didn't give us any window screens? Actually, nope, they gave us one window screen. We got about ten windows. Actually, may have more than that. And we have one window screen. So... If we want to open the windows without the bugs coming in, we're going to need some screens. Now, of course, they've only had, I don't know, 10 or 11 months to get window screens, so I guess I'm putting a lot of pressure on these guys. We found uh, some of the contractors had damaged the kitchen countertop, put some chips in it, and it's a granite countertop, too. It takes some work to put some chips in that. So that's got to be fixed. And, of course, we had some heavy rains come through, and we found some fresh leaks in the basement. Isn't that wonderful? That basement still leaks. (sighs) And uh, I found a scratch on the vanity, the bathroom vanity. Now, it's supposed to be made out of marble, but I don't think it's real marble. I think it's some kind of faux marble or something. Anyway, they're supposed to be able to polish that out. I I don't think there's no way that's real marble. Nah, it's not real marble. And then uh, we found some basement pipes where we can still see the dirt coming up. (laughs) And the mud, so we thought it'd be nice if they'd seal around those things. And that is our house update. Moving on, over the past fortnight, we received six donations and pledges, and I would like to thank Andrew S. from Australia who donated at the Apollo level and earned a satellite emoji. Peter H. from France donated at the Apollo level and earned an alien emoji. Peter M. from California sent in another donation and moved to the Soyuz level. Marcus S. from Germany donated at the Sputnik level and earned a galaxy emoji. Thomas F. from Southern New Jersey pledged on Patreon at the Salyut Skylab level. Keith O. pledged on Patreon at the Apollo level, and AJS pledged on Patreon at the Mercury level. Our total Patreon donors have reached 255. That's that's uh, close to a record there, and I'm all I'm pleased that we actually are, are gaining some Patreon donors. I appreciate that. Of course, our goal, which it has been for the past two or three years, is to reach 300 on Patreon. Our total donors for 2022 have reached 303. With our overall goal 
of 500 for the year. We have yet to make the 500 mark. So if you're enjoying the podcast that has been running nine years without commercial interruptions and you can afford it, please consider going to the homepage at spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Now here's Mrs. SRH with this episode's donor giveaway. Thanks, Mike. Hello, Space Rocket History friends. It is such a wonderful feeling to be in our new home. I can enjoy the sunrise and the sunset from my back deck. I look out the window and see the grandchildren playing and my heart melts. Just seeing the families walk through the fields back to their homes after a family dinner has been heartwarming. We are thankful on so many levels to finally be in our new home and in walking distance to the grandchildren. Now, for the drawing. Remember, the winner will get the choice of the rare and beautiful SRH archive magnet, or the regular magnet, or two stickers, or two static clings, or two holographic stickers, or a genuine NASA meatball sticker. With the help of Google's random number generator, I selected Mike Hutchins. Mike Hutchins, if you would email us spacerockethistory at gmail.com, tell us your address and your SRH prize preference, we'll get this out to you. Sincere thanks to all 303 of you who have contributed thus far in 2022. My sources for this episode were Wired.com, NASA, Encyclopedia Britannica, Astronautics.com, Skylab, America's Space Station by David Shaler, Skylab Owner's Workshop Manual by David Baker, Homesteading Space, The Skylab Story by David Hitt, Growing Up with Space Flight, Skylab slash ASTP by Wes Oswesky, Outpost on the Frontier by Jay Chaladic, and Wikipedia. And that's all I have for this episode. I'll try to get an episode 387 posted by April 24th. Stay healthy, everyone, and so long for now.